and uh, we'll be reading this entire chapter for our reading this morning. We were looking for visitors and those who haven't been here, and I uh, couldn't help but notice that one guy I hadn't seen in a long time, and I have to pick on him today. Steve, you know it's coming. Good to have you here, man. Steve has been gone for us for a while. I know he has been caring for his mom in Chicago on the weekends. Some of you get to see him during the week if you work at the Walkie Rescue Mission, but I hadn't seen him in a long time. And so I'm glad to see him. I'm glad to have him back with us. And uh, we might just lock the doors and not let him go home and just keep him with us. But uh, we're glad to have him. Yes, brother. Amen. Amen. We'll continue to do that. <clears throat> also, just a, a, a thought and a reminder as we give the, the ministry uh, um, outlook to you, uh, it's an opportunity. You have many opportunities, and when you hear the announcements, to be involved in ministry in the church here. And that's exactly what God has in mind, not for you to just sit on the sideline, but as you turn to Christ, you turn your life to Christ and get involved in the church. So if you're here, God wants you to be a member. God wants you to be involved, and you need not just sit on the sideline. You sat long enough. Get up, get busy, get involved, find out where God wants to put you, and, uh, and, and start being used of the Lord. Amen? amen? All right, you said amen, so I expect you to do just that. All right, our scripture reading today, Matthew chapter 5. Let's all stand in respect to uh, the reading of God's word. If you don't have your own Bible, ushers have Bibles available. Just raise your hand right now. They'll bring one to you. Raise it nice and high so they can see it if you need a Bible. All right. All right, we got plenty available. So if you need one, go ahead and raise your hand. I'll be reading in the ESV, the English Standard Version. That's what we use here at Sweet Communion. And the Bibles that we hand out are in that, so it makes it easy for you to follow along. <clears throat> Matthew 5. Let's begin in the reading of God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do, you, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you offer, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said of all, to those of old, you should not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would, would, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God give us understanding in this portion of Scripture that we read now and we'll be preaching through this morning. Would you please join me in prayer as you remain standing by your heads with me in prayer. After prayer, we'll have a song from our choir and then the preaching of God's Word on Matthew chapter 5. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to be here together again. Um, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you and fellowshipping together. We thank you for each person that you have drawn here today. You have a purpose in mind for them, and I pray, Lord, that we might each um, see and submit to the purpose that you have for us. Father, we pray that you uh, would bless this assembly of believers here. Some who are not here today because of sickness, we think and we continue to pray for Bonnie. We thank you for Bill who's here today. We pray for strength for him, for support for him. Their family might come together to care for Bonnie in a way that you would have them to do. Uh, we pray that we as a church family would care for her in a way that you'd have us to do. And we, we pray that you would sustain him and help him and encourage him and bless him. We pray for her healing. We pray, Lord, that she would listen and, and cooperate with the care that she needs. And you give wisdom for um, um, how that care should be done and how she can work with it. We pray for others, Lord, who have had tests, uh, uh, different uh, uh, um, operations or procedures that you would just uh, watch over each one and bless and keep. Some are looking forward to tests coming up or procedures coming up. And we pray that you would give them your peace, knowing, Lord, that that uh, all that they do and all that they are, their bodies belong to you and that they can trust you with it. Not that that is easy or, or, or unsettling at times, but we pray that we learn to trust you and we learn to just rely on you. You've given us these bodies for a short time. They do have a, an expiration date. May we be faithful to you uh, up until that date, Lord, so that we can bring glory to you. May we recognize that we have a limited time to serve you. May we get busy doing your work and doing your will. So uh, we pray for these. We pray for Brian and Heidi as they minister. Brian will be preaching today in Anderson, Indiana. We pray uh, that you would bless the preaching of your word. They're an hour ahead of us, so he may very well be preaching right now. So we pray for him. We pray and thank you for the opportunity he has to serve there um, under his father-in-law. And uh, thank you for the, the uh, fellowship and the relationship that you have uh, allowed them to enjoy. Pray that that might continue and that you would use it for your glory. Um, and Lord, so we pray for this service today, that you would give us, help us to give attention to your word, that you might have for us um, from your word that which we need and that you might um, allow us to to understand and to take from your word and to uh, be challenged by your word, be encouraged by your word, and that we might walk in obedience to you through your word today. We pray this now in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Took a break from our series in Matthew last week for a special message on Father's Day. But before then, we were in chapter 4. In chapter 3 in Matthew, we see the introduction of Jesus into his earthly ministry with a baptism by John the Baptist. There, God the Father announced publicly for all to hear that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And with that, he sends his son into the ministry that he has called him for. As he goes into that ministry in chapter 4, we see it starts with a testing. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. And so we see that that's part of God's plan for him to endure the testing to prove and to show to, to all who could see that he is exactly who God has called him to be, the one who come to pay for our sin. He was tempted, but he did not succumb. He did not give in to that temptation. And we notice how he fought that temptation with the promise and the word of God. And now we see uh, at the end of chapter 4, he begins to call his disciples to him. And now in chapter 5, we see the beginning of his teaching. We're going to see in Matthew both his teaching and his action. And, and we put those together and we see the powerful ministry and the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this teaching, let's look at what he does. Remember when he started off the teaching in chapter 4, it says this. Verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time... Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we see that his, his teaching is centered on this kingdom of heaven, and that it is appearing right now, just as John the Baptist has said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So men and women ought to repent, turn from sin, so that they might be a part of this kingdom of heaven. This is the same message that Jesus preached. And so now we see... Uh, the chapter 5, through, all the way through, ch through chapter 5, 6, and 7 is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because he preaches on a mountain. Look at verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then, verse 2, he began to speak. All of these words are part of his message, his teaching to all who had gathered around him. So many had began to follow him. They, they, they wanted to hear of his teaching, and he begins to teach them. So what is the gist of this teaching? It is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, Jesus is going to speak of what it means to be a part of this kingdom. It's a kingdom because it is a king, God the Father, is going to rule over all of his creation. Jesus Christ is going to rule with him. This kingdom is being presented, and men and women, boys and girls, individuals all around need to prepare for this kingdom. So Jesus is preparing them for that. In his first part, we call the Beatitudes, what we are to be like. He says, blessed are those 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted uh, for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you. And so he, he talks about these different uh, um, we might call them classes of people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the attitude of those who are waiting for the kingdom. Jesus is telling them what it should be like, what, what kind of mindset should those be who are prepared to come into his kingdom, what kind of mindset must they have? He starts off with poor in spirit. Um, I want you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8, um, because I want you to see what it says there. You turn to Psalms, the middle of the Bible, kind of, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8 says this. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So the poor is a contrast to pride. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are not prideful, but instead are patient. This is the attitude again. He's saying those who are waiting for what God has to come, have this kind of attitude. Be patient in spirit. Not proud or arrogant, but looking and anticipating what God has coming. Think about that. The second part, he says, blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. If you're still in Ecclesiastes 7, look at verses 2 through 5 with me. Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through, 4, 2 through 5. It says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go, the, than to, go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and all the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What is he saying? He's saying those who are waiting for the kingdom aren't looking to party right now. Because they're going to party later. When I was in college, we had, a, we had a saying that we would encourage ourselves with. We knew college was hard. We knew it was tough to study all the time and to, and to do what you needed to do to prepare. But our, our saying was, work hard, party later. Work hard, party later. In other words, it, it's not like you've given up all the fun, but you knew you had to concentrate and focus your time now so that you can enjoy life better later on. In other words, sacrifice now because you're going to have party time later. We teach our kids that do your homework first. 
then go watch TV, then go play video games. Do, do the work first so that you can relax and enjoy those other things. Jesus is saying that for the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, not, not those who are trying to party all along now because they, they don't know what they're partying for. Most people are partying in the world, are partying trying to forget their troubles. We're willing to forsake some of that so that we can really party later on. So we don't miss the real party. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who, who mourn a little bit now, who are willing to sacrifice some stuff now for what they're going to enjoy later. That's the whole gist of what he's saying here in these blessings. Look at this, because it, it, it is a... It is a, uh, some people think this is a passive attitude that he's promoting. Look at all the ones that he's saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. The meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. First of all, I want you to notice the pattern. Blessed are those, and he gives an attribute. Blessed are those who are like this now. Because they will be, in other words, there's a present tense, those who are like this now, and a future tense of what they're going to enjoy. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They're mourning now, but they're looking forward to a time when that comfort is going to come. And that's what it means to anticipate the kingdom. We're going to go through some struggles now, but we're looking forward to the joy of realizing or living in heaven. So he's saying, it's going to be worth it. Blessed are the meek. You see, those who believe in Christ are, are meek now. We, we, sometimes we're called foolish because um, um, uh, we, we don't get riled up or, or we're not aggressive. as if, We're not fighting for everything here on earth. You know why? Because the stuff that I have, it ain't about what we have here. It's about what I have there. I'm not so much trying to protect everything here on earth like it's all that I got. Because it ain't. I got more. Way more than what I got here, I got in heaven. So I have a different attitude about this present life because I have a hope of where I'm going to afterwards. I have a hope in this kingdom of God. He says in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who make that their desire. Why do you say they're blessed? Because it's hard to do that. The world today is not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They want stuff. They want their party right now. They want to enjoy everything right now. They don't want to wait. They want it right now. And they'll take yours if they have to. And that's their attitude. But Jesus is saying, the ones that are part of my kingdom they look forward to what is to come. And they're willing to sacrifice the now for what they are sure of they'll have later. You see, that's why we don't spend our time partying. That's why drugs don't have that appeal to us. Because drugs is for the person who needs to get high now to forget the trouble that he knows he has. But the believer says, no, I have a joy to look forward to so I don't, I don't need to space out in this life to, to get through my troubles. I'm trusting in God for it because I know I have something more sure in the future. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall 
receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, it's saying we are this now, but what we will be or what we will enjoy is the presence of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted. He's saying something about this kingdom life is that to live it now is to sacrifice some, some joys and some pleasures now for the sake of gaining more joy and more pleasure afterwards. You see, the Bible is consistent. It says we walk by faith, not by sight. It's not a what you got right now. It's what you have to look forward to. And in fact, what you're willing to sacrifice now so that you can enjoy or maybe say it this way since we have so much to enjoy we are willing to make the sacrifice now of living a disciplined life living obediently to God because we know it's worth it in fact that's the whole message in this first part he's saying look to live for God to be a part of his kingdom is to know by faith that it's going to be worth it there and I can go through the tough times here because of what he's promised to me over there. Then he goes through this. He uses two things to describe what a citizen of the kingdom is right now. Salt and light. The, the citizen of God's kingdom today is to be salt. Salt is used for, um, uh, as a preservative and for seasoning. Right? Um, he says, we are salt. He says, but if salt lost its, its flavor, if it doesn't taste salty anymore, what good is it? What good is it? He says, it's, it's not much good. He says, if you take a light and hide it under a basket, what good is it? If nobody sees it, what good is it? The point is, is that he's made us to be salt, to have an impact on those around us, and light to illuminate to those around us, not to be hidden and pushed aside, but we are to be, we are to impact the sinful world that we live in. God wants to expose us to the world so we have an impact on them. Salt is not always something that people want. You know, when salt gets in your eye, it's an irritant, and you don't want it. But he says, you ought to be salt that doesn't lose its saltiness. When salt gets into an open womb, it's an irritant. It stings. It hurts. People don't want salt around all the time. People don't want you. Salt is, is this thing that brings conviction to people. As a believer, you're going to bring conviction to others and to where they're not comfortable living that life around you because you will hold testimony against that life. And for some, some points in our life, people will not want to be around us anymore. When I was in college and I really began to walk for the Lord, I lost a lot of friends. They just didn't want to be around me anymore. They said to me, I was no more fun. I knew I was no more fun because I had friends who wanted to live in relationships that I just wasn't, be, I wasn't going to be down for anymore. 
I told one friend, look, I'm not going to let you treat your girlfriend the way you're doing now and me stand by and do nothing. He didn't like that anymore. He couldn't be around me anymore. He certainly couldn't let his girlfriend be around me because I was going to tell her the truth about what was going on. He couldn't stand that. But that's all right. Salt sometimes. (laughs) It's salty, and people don't like it. When you bring light into a dark place, all the bugs start to scatter because they like the darkness, the dampness of that. But we bring light to a situation, they don't want to be there anymore, and they don't want us around anymore. Why'd you come to this party, man, if you don't, do, don't want to do what we're doing? Maybe you shouldn't have been there. But maybe you should be a light where you should be. And he says, let your light so shine. Let it shine. Don't hide it. Let it shine. It gives light to all. He says, let, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, actually, there's a time lapse there. They see your good works, but they don't immediately give glory to your Father in heaven until they tested that a little bit. But you need to be a light first, and then later on they'll come back and give glory to God for you. I remember um, I was living for Christ as a young person, and uh, I was a part of a fraternity in college, and I had a lot of, a lot of brothers who was in that fraternity, and, and I told them why I could no longer be a part with them in the fraternity. They weren't doing sinful or wicked, evil things, but I had a higher calling than that. God was calling me to to minister the gospel everywhere I was, and I was doing that. I didn't think God, I was a pastor then. I wasn't. But God had called me to share the gospel with people who desperately needed to hear the gospel, and to them, I was reigning on their parade. They didn't want me around. Um, but I continued to do that and be a testimony everywhere, wherever I went. And, and uh, uh, so they wanted me to be doing their stuff. And I'm, I, I got God's, God has a purpose for me. And I'm going to be about that work and be about that business. And it's, it's that time that God was challenging my heart to, to go against the grain, to go against what the world was looking for and what the world was calling. The reason I did that, I realized the world didn't have any answers. The world didn't have answers to the, the real devastation and the trouble that people were facing, and, and, and I knew that. I needed to let people know and hear and see the truth. So God says, Jesus says to them, be salt and be light. Let it shine uh, 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 through uh, your life and, and, and let God work through that. There was a guy who told me afterwards, I'm glad you were a testimony. Because I, basically he was an undercover Christian. And when I became, get, began to be bold, he finally decided that, hey, you know, now I have some support. But you need, to be, you need to be that whether you have support or not. Maybe you're on your job and, and, and you may be the only one or you think the only one that is sharing that testimony of Christ. But continue to share it. Others might ridicule you for that, but share it. Someone may come back to you years later and say, thank you for being a light. Thank you for being salt. I needed to see somebody different, somebody who was willing to go against the grain and to speak a message of truth 
and, and gospel. Then this next section in Matthew uh, 5, Jesus talks about his purpose. And I think it starts in verse 17 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. And it's this. He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And he begins to say some things that seems to challenge what they thought the law said. It's important, this first part. Let's look at verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. When he says law or prophets, those are words that, 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 that mean the Old Testament. He says, I didn't come to upset that, to change it, or to abolish it. He says, I came to fulfill it. In other words, the Old Testament speaks of Jesus, and he is the fulfillment of He's the completion of all that the Old Testament is saying. He wants them to see that. And then he says this. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot, not an iota, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's part of God's promise. He will fulfill all that he has promised to do. Then he makes another statement I think is key to understanding this whole section. Verse 26. Excuse me, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How disturbing that must have been for them to hear that. Because the scribes and the Pharisees had an outward righteousness that was just tops. Now, I said outward. What do I mean by outward? They lived on the outward. They lived on the outside as if they were obeying God's word. They interpreted God's word, and they stood for it, and they lived in a way outwardly that looked like they were conforming uh, uh, to God's word. Inwardly, though, they were not. What we mean by inward, we mean the heart. When we talk about outward, we're... I use a phrase, uh, the letter of the law. They, they act like they were following what God said, but in their heart, they didn't follow what God intended and what he meant. And Jesus begins to point these things out. He wants an obedience that's not just an outward conformity. When I raised my children at home, there's certain things they had to do. And I taught them to do these things and to practice them, but I also taught them to have the right heart in doing them. But it was up to them to get that right heart about doing it. I wasn't going to change the standard uh, just because their heart didn't match what they really should do in the house. Let me give you an example. There's certain foods that we ate and certain foods we didn't eat. And certain times of a day that we ate foods and certain times we didn't eat foods. Desserts were to be eaten after a meal, after you ate the nutritious meal, you could enjoy a dessert. And so whether they understood the nutritional value of the meal they were eating and totally bought into that didn't matter. They were going to follow what I said. And later on, they would learn how wise it was to, to have nutrition in mind as they ate. But I didn't expect them to value all their vegetables. I didn't expect them to value eating properly fully, but I expected them to conform to 
the rule that I had set. And so it was in a lot of the other things, like going to church. They may not appreciate or going to school, period. You're going to go to school today, and you're going to be consistent and on time at school, whether you see the value in that or not. I don't, don't see why I need geometry. I don't think I need uh, English. Uh, I know how to speak already. Well, you might not realize how important that is, but I'm instructing you to do this, and I expect you to do that. So I'm expecting you to conform to what I said, even though your heart may not totally see it. When you get wise later on, you will see it. And you will joyfully do what God would have you to do. So there's an there's a outward conformity, and there's the inward of the heart. But something's wrong when someone does it just on the outward and doesn't have the right attitude or heart to go with it. And Jesus was pointing that out. He uses several things. He talks about, starts off with murder. He talks about adultery, divorce. Oaths, retaliation, and love for enemies. And he uses phrases, so I want you to see the pattern in the phrase. He will say something like this. You have heard that it was said, and it was also said this, or it was said in the past, but I say to you. Now, what is he contrasting? He's not contrasting what he said to the word of God. He's contrasting what they, how they interpreted God's word to what the real interpretation should be. For example, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, so what he's doing is he's, he's challenging their interpretation of what God said and giving them a proper interpretation that includes the heart obedience to God. Let me, let's illustrate. In anger, he says, you heard that you shouldn't murder. And if you do murder, you're liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He's saying, you thought God's word only meant this outward, that if you literally kill a man, you've done wrong. But what you misunderstood is that if in your heart you have opposed God's word, and in your heart you want to do something that isn't right, you have violated God's word. Let's bring it on down. Here it is. I drive every day. And there's times when somebody does something to me in traffic that I just want to, I want to let them have it. I want to cut them off. I want to run them off the road. I want to see them in an accident two blocks ahead. And Jesus says, you didn't actually run them off the road. But if you had your way in your heart, you did. And he said, that's wrong. And what I can do is I can hide what's in my heart 
and look good on the outside, but God is one who judges the heart. And so his written law exposes the obvious done sin, but God is, goes further than what his written law. The written law is made for everybody to see what a clear violation is, but God is looking on the inside, and he sees that. And so it goes back to the statement where he starts off, says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's, let me paraphrase, ain't no way you're getting in heaven. That's what he says. And they must have cringed when he said that because he said, what do you mean? Ain't no way I can do more righteous than those guys are doing. They tops. He said, if you can't, ain't no way you're getting into heaven. Why? Two reasons. One, he has exposed the sinful heart of them, even though you can't see the outside. You can't see it from the outside. He's exposed that. Secondly, he is showing the level of judgment that God places, a standard that we cannot attain to. And so at the end of this chapter, he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And every one of us said, oops. I disqual I'm disqualified. Every one of us. Every one of us. The standard is right, and the standard is good, and God expects the standard. The heart can't meet it without a transformation that comes from God. Later on in John chapter 3, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of those Pharisees who was a do-gooder, and everything he did on the outside appeared right. But he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, basically, now that's something I, it's impossible for me to do. What do you mean be born again? I can't do that. I can see Jesus just smiling and saying, exactly. Ain't nothing you can do to get to that standard unless God does it for you. Unless God brings new life in you, you can't reach the standard that he demands and so you are condemned. You are utterly condemned. So Jesus says with anger, you call your brother or sister name, you have violated in your heart this anger thing. We got anger management stuff now. <laughs> you know, count to 10 before Hulk comes out, right? I get it. We are in control and we are responsible for self-control. God's standard hasn't changed. But he's saying even when you follow that standard, you better recognize your heart because I see the real heart. And your heart's saying, I'll kill him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him the first chance I get. And God says, condemned. <laughs> condemned. And rightly condemned. He says in terms of lust, in verse I always put my glasses on so I can read the literal numbers. 27, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, some people say, well, see, well, since I already committed, then I might as well just keep on committing it. He didn't say that. He said that to point out our sinful nature of our sinful heart. The heart is desperately wicked. And sinful, and Jesus is exposing that for a reason to show what's the standard for his kingdom, this new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. He says, you thought if you complete the act, 
that you have sinned, God says the mere thought is sin. The mere thought is sin. So I've seen people try to play mental and spiritual gymnastics. They basically want to say to me this, how far can I go in sin before sin? Y'all know what I'm talking about. How far, how much can I do before it's sin? We had a president of the United States who did that two separate ways. For one, he said he didn't inhale when he smoked drugs. Some of y'all too young to understand, I mean, to, to, to remember that. But that's what he said. He said he used to do drugs when he was younger, but he never inhaled. So technically, he didn't do it. He said the same thing about sex, that he did not complete the act, and it was legally not an act of intercourse, and so he was innocent. We are saying to ourselves, how far, how much can I do, and it sin, but it's not sin yet? It's a foolish question because our hearts are so wicked and so sinful. To even explore that question shows the sinfulness of our heart. One pastor told me, example, of a person who was looking to hire a chauffeur. Someone who could drive him around. And so he had a test for this chauffeur. And he had him drive him around to a high cliff. And he says, how good is your driving skill? And how close can you get to the edge of the cliff? And so the one driver says, I've got ultimate confidence and ultimate skill. And I can get right up close to that cliff. He says, okay, let's turn around and go home. He took the next driver out as a test, and he asked him the same question. With your skill and your confidence, how close can you get to that cliff? And the driver says, sir, I'm going to stay as far away from that cliff as I possibly can. He said, you hired. <laughs> you passed the test. You see, it's not how much can I do before it's sin and how close can I get to it. But my heart, Lord, is to please you, is to obey you completely. I know my heart is wicked, so I don't want to go anywhere close to danger and temptation. That's why Jesus taught, we'll see it in Matthew 6, to pray to God, Lord, keep me from or lead me not into temptation. Why? Because I'm weak. Because I'm vulnerable. And because I want to obey God, but I know how weak my flesh is. You know what? That's why we're here today. That's why we're here. We discipline ourselves to do the things that God would have us to do to keep us from the things that God doesn't want us to be around. We discipline ourselves. We recognize how weak our heart is. Jesus said this about discipline in our passage. He says, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better, than you, it's better that you lose one member of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. He talks about discipline. And what he's saying is 
the, it, it, it is important for us to exert discipline in our lives to keep us from sin because the conclusion of sin is hell. A couple things to note there. Discipline is important. Now, some people have asked, is, does Jesus mean this literally? And I would say to them, the figurative is important and strong enough. He's saying sin is so devastating that if you could stop it by cutting your arm off, you would do well to cut it off. Now, we know that the cutting the arm or the cutting the eye doesn't stop the heart from imagining and thinking, so that's not going to end sin. But the point there is Jesus is saying it is just as important as if you would gouge your eye out. So what does that mean? Sunday school class, the teacher was talking about men who struggle with pornography. And I've often asked men, are you willing to throw that phone away? Are you willing to throw that game system away? Are you willing to throw, to, to not have the internet in your home? And, and, and I hear this all the time, but pastor, I need that. I have to have that. You know what my answer is? You need your right eye too. Jesus saying, you might have to discipline yourself past some of the things you think you need if it's that much of a temptation to you. Go to the extreme to keep the temptation as far away from you as you possibly can because it's worth it. The second thing to note here is that Jesus actually talks about hell. He starts off talking about heaven. He says, these are the things of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to understand this. But in his talk about heaven, he talks about hell. That's not the Jesus that people promote today. The Jesus that people promote today got a pipe, he got dreads, and he's smoking dope and, 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 and talking in Proverbs all the time. The Jesus here talks clearly about a place of torment that is God's eternal judgment. And he says, you should do anything you possibly can to keep from going to that place, including if you could and if it would help, gouging out your own eye. The place is real. The temptation is real. The danger is real. And so the discipline needs to be real. So if you think you can go back to your drinking after you've had a few successful months or years and you'll be okay, do you think you can fool around being with your old friends again and it not bother you anymore? You think you can talk along with a woman, person from the opposite sex, and that you can, hey, hey, I've solved this. I ain't got no issue there anymore. Well, maybe you're not human anymore. <laughs> Jesus says, beware. And put discipline into practice because it's worth it. And the danger there is one of eternal judgment. Hell is real. He says hell several times in this passage, and we do well to note what he's saying there. Then he talks about divorce. And the point with divorce 
is this. Let me paraphrase. You have heard it said or you thought that it said that you're free to divorce and you're free to remarry for whatever reason you want. But I say to you, don't. (laughs) Don't. He says the same thing about oaths. He says, you've heard it said, you can make an oath as long as you keep it. But I say to you, don't even make it. Don't even make it. In other words, don't make no promises that you can't keep. (laughs) Let your promises, let your word be simple. Yes and no. Don't boast about what it is you're going to do. Now, is he saying don't make any commitments? No, he's definitely not saying that. In fact, he's saying make the right commitment. Make the commitment to God. Make the commitment to the relationships God would have you to make. He talks about retaliation. And he's saying, you've heard it saying it's okay. You have a right to do this if somebody does that. He said, but I'm challenging you to not respond in that way at all. That's tough. What he's saying is impossible for us to do in the natural mind. Somebody look at me the wrong way. I'm I'm ready to challenge them. In the natural mind, that's where we are. And he says, I'm calling you to, 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 to respond in a whole different mindset. And you need my Holy Spirit to do this. That's the only way you're going to accomplish this. That's why he says when he concludes all of this, let's look at the last couple verses. Verse 48, the last verse. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's a high standard. Can you think of anything higher? I can't. We're not sufficient for those things. He is saying the door to the kingdom is not opened by human arms because all of us would be disqualified. But it's the grace of God who brings us into this kingdom and then gives us the power to live the way that he wants us to live. It's amazing to me that those 12 men, actually 11 Minus 12 minus Judas that made 11, but you add Paul in there, you can get 12 again. Those 12 men who followed Jesus wholeheartedly were average men. In the last chapter, we see him call those two sets of brothers. They were fishermen. They were average, everyday kind of men and women and people like me and you. But at the end of their life, with the exception of one, they all were called to lay down their life. They all died their faith and the one who didn't was was exiled on an island for his faith instead of dying 
They all gave their life for the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that we would think are impossible. But because they were transformed by the power of God, they were able to live above a human standard and live in obedience to God. Now, were they perfect? No. Not a one. In fact, they're presented in the word of God to show us that they are just like me and you. But in a transformed life with the power of God living in them, they lived in ways that only God could bring about. This is what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn our lives over to him. And he gives us the power to live in a kingdom way that's totally different than what the world sees and what we see in the world around us. We're living now to transform the world around us, to expose them to truth, to challenge them by our very lives. It's like this. It's like we are seeds now, and God is going to take our lives and bury us in the dirt so that we can bring forth and produce what God will be pleased with. Are you willing to give your life to Christ, to let him take you, bury you, and let fruit come from your life? He does that by the power of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for those who hear your message. We pray, Lord, that you draw to yourself those who in human terms would not be attracted to a life that's this challenging and this difficult at times, but yet it is so, so rewarding. Only those who by faith see heaven and see your rewards can embark on it because they know it's worth it. Open our eyes that we might see. Increase our faith and our trust of you so that we will freely give you our lives to live the way you want to be lived for your glory and no longer for our own. Draw people today from this congregation to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.